Welcome to the next edition of the Mass Bar Beat, the podcast of the Massachusetts Bar Association. I'm Jason Scally, and I'm here with Christopher Kenny, MBA treasurer and founding member and shareholder of Kenny and Sam's, with offices in Boston and Southboro. Chris is a trial lawyer who has tried cases before every level of the state and federal trial court system in Massachusetts. He's a former Defense Lawyer of the Year, and he was recently appointed to serve as director of the IADC Trial Academy at Stanford University Law School. Now, Chris has given numerous talks on trial practice, and he's with us today to talk about nonverbal communication at trial, which is the subject of an article he's written that you'll see in Lawyer's Journal later this year. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Jason. There's a saying that you only get one chance to make a first impression. And Chris, you say that's especially important in court. Yes, it is. And there's another saying that first impressions are lasting impressions. So it's very important that counsel recognize that from the moment they first enter the courtroom, court personnel, the judge, and potential jurors are making snap decisions about the lawyer, snap judgments based on how they're dressed, how they walk in the courtroom, how they treat others, and making all of these decisions before counsel's really ever uttered a word in the courtroom. So one of the most important things, and one of the things that counsel can control, is dress. There's a great book out there by Sonia Hamlin entitled, now, what makes juries listen? And Ms. Hamlin, who is a jury consultant, gives great insightful anecdotes, tips, and, and uh, techniques, really, on how counsel can better control how they come across as part of a first impression. And the first thing she focuses on is dress. There is a certain uniform associated with lawyers, and it's what people expect to see when they come into courtroom. And it's important that lawyers pay attention to that so that they're dressed sends the message that they want uh, the jury to take from them. Part of the standard uniform for lawyers, Hamlin says, is a conservative, credible look. For men, this is really a navy blue suit, a white shirt, a rep tie or a paisley tie, and certainly shine shoes. Hamlin says that's one of the most common complaints she gets, or criticism she gets, from juror feedback about lawyers is that their shoes aren't shined. And jurors, they, uh, they infer almost uniformly negative things from that, that the lawyer couldn't afford a shine or the lawyer was disrespecting the court proceeding. And she quotes some jurors as saying, hey, we had to be here. We sat through this trial and the lawyer didn't even think enough of us to shine his shoes. For women, apparel uh, choices can be a little bit uh, different for men, certainly. But again, the, the key words are conservative and credible. Jewelry is something that has to be paid attention to as well. For example, rings. Wearing a wedding ring is a message that sends to the jury that at least someone loves you and trusts you, so that's good. But a pinky ring sends a different type of message, and not to the good. Likewise, um, necklaces and earrings can be distracting from the lawyer's message. So particularly with women, when they get their jewelry on, should make sure that it's conservative and doesn't distract from their verbal message. Who knew that the jurors would look at that level of detail? Well, the axiom is as old as Shakespeare's Hamlet, when he said, the clothes make the man. And that, that adage certainly applies equally to women in the courtroom. Now, it's not just dressing the part. You've got to act the part, too, right? Absolutely. Counsel's demeanor and posture and general body language communicates to others what the message is. And if those nonverbal cues are inconsistent with the verbal message, counsel's got a problem. Again, the good news is we can control much of this and make sure that there's synchronicity between our nonverbal communication and our verbal messaging. For example, 
posture. Think about the common characteristics that we assign to people. Is so-and-so a slouch or a stand-up guy? Both of those actually literally refer to posture. But being a slouch is a derogatory association, and being a stand-up guy is, of course, positive. That's based on posture, and we can all control that. But you have to pay attention to it. Likewise, if you are in court and you're using your hands to communicate, that can be something that enhances and complements your verbal message, or can be something that's entirely incongruous with the message and distracts the listener. For example, clicking a pen or you know, putting your fingers in your pocket and jingling change. Those send the message that you're insecure and lack confidence. On the other hand, if you use your hands or your, um, your head to complement your message, it can enhance the message. For example, there are cultural norms we all know, like nodding your head connotes agreement. Shaking your head connotes disagreement. Shrugging your shoulders says, I don't know. You've got to make sure that when you're using these types of body cues, they match the message you're trying to send. In addition to posture, think about movement. Counsel should send the message that the courtroom is her arena. So one caveat on that is make sure that you know in advance if the judge has any limitations on counsel's movement around the courtroom during trial. Some judges will want counsel to stay at the lectern or counsel table. Others will allow them some leeway. Assuming that it's the latter that you're allowed to move around within reason, think about how you do it. Move with purpose. For example, if you're doing a cross-examination of a hostile witness, counsel can position himself directly in front of the jury box, 8 to 10 feet back. And as he poses his questions on cross-examination, the focus is that counsel is on stage. Counsel's body position in the courtroom says, I'm testifying. It's my question that matters. Forget about their answer. I'm putting a question to them that they can't deny. Of course, the, the spoken examination should say that, but the body placement and posture says it equally well. On, cross, on a direct examination, conversely, counsel wants to be off stage and wants to turn his friendly witness into the star. So you would think about placing yourself at the far end of the jury box so that your friendly witness has to answer your questions in a manner that is loud enough and projected clearly enough for every juror to hear it before it comes to you at the end of the jury box. By placing yourself in this position, you become like the 13th juror and it allows all of the jurors into the conversation you're having with your friendly witness. Those, again, are types of things that counsel can think about in advance, plan, and execute, regardless of one's innate talent or skill level. By focusing on posture, placement, and movement of the courtroom, you can enhance your message. So there's not one best place to stand in the courtroom. It really what you're saying is tailor it to the situation? Precisely. So if you were... If you were doing a direct examination, for example, and you got way up close to your witness, you'd actually have your back to the jury. So there'd be a barrier between your friendly witness and the jury that would act to detract from the message you're eliciting from your witness. That would be a mistake. That's why I said earlier that counsel really would want to make sure they're back at the end of the jury box so they're frankly off stage. And that's a you know the strategic decision and placement you make. If you're giving an opening statement, or a closing argument in a courtroom, you want to be back on stage in front of the jury box with the exhibits that you're going to refer to within easy reach. 
perhaps with a whiteboard there if you intend to chart out some damage calculations. But you want to send the message that I've been here before. This is what I do for a living. I'm good at it. Believe me. And you do that with the way that you present yourself. Certainly in addition to the way that you project your case with your spoken words and argument, but it's important before you ever open your mouth that you think about where you're standing, how you're standing, how you're moving, how you're dressed, and how you generally come across in a nonverbal context. If we can, let, let's talk about the hands and arms, because I know anytime I've done public speaking, I always wonder, do you put them on the lectern? Do you put them at your side? Put them in your pocket? Is there sort of a, a rule of thumb, or is that also um, an, an it depends type of question? It's an it depends kind of question. Just like you choose your words carefully, you choose your gesticulation or your gesturing carefully. And it's critical, Jason, that there be synchronicity between the gesturing and the spoken word. So, for example, if you were doing a cross-examination and you wanted to say to the uh, unfriendly witness, there were three chances you had to avoid this accident, you might hold up three fingers as you're saying that. And that enhances and reinforces the verbal message and also outlines for the jury that you're now going to go through first, second, third. That's helpful how you might use it in that context. In a closing argument, if you're representing the plaintiff and you want to elicit sympathy, you might hold your, your hands out, arms bent at the elbow, as you're saying, there was simply no way for Mrs. Jones to avoid the accident. Brakes were defective. She never had a chance. With your arms out that way, you're sending the message that it was hopeless and it's not her fault. And that would be a way that you undermine any argument of comparative negligence without using those words. One other way is um, how you stand when you are addressing the court. And this is important because I've seen lawyers who think it's always business-like or attorney-like to puff your chest out and put your hands together behind your back. I see it all the time. And yet, I think it sends potentially conflicting messages to an observer. Think about that posture. Chest puffed out, hands clasped behind your back. That could be a positive connotation, like a United States Marine at parade rest. Mm -hmm. Or it could be a very negative connotation, like a criminal defendant with his hands handcuffed uh, behind his back. Very good point. So you have to think about you know, the different messages might be sent off by any posture or pose you take in the courtroom. Now, Chris, I know we're talking about nonverbal forms of communication, but beyond the words you use in court, what about the tone of voice? Oh, your voice is literally a toolbox for advocacy. It gives everything you need to repair an uninspired message. For example, you can use your tone, tenor, inflection, volume, pace, and pitch to enhance your message. Let me give you some examples. If you're trying to pose a question to the jury, maybe a rhetorical question as part of your argument, think about the inflection at the end of that sentence. For example, if I were to say, do you understand? It's a little different if I say, do you understand? And you can hear the question mark audibly at the end of the sentence because my inflection raises at the end. Likewise, you want to be able to hear the exclamation point in your verbal messaging. So you're going to use your voice as a tool to do that. If you want to draw the jurors in while you're recounting a story, say it's a 
wrongful death case and you're recounting how the accident happened, you might lower your voice and slow down your pace a little bit so that the jurors are leaning forward, listen a little more attentively. And then as the scene of the accident approaches and things get a little more hectic, you might pick it up and have a little more sense of urgency in your voice so that they'll understand they're about to get to impact. These are ways that you can use your voice to enhance your messaging as well. One thing I know you've mentioned to me earlier, and I, I found this fascinating, uh, you caution that even gestures can get an attorney in trouble under the rules of professional conduct if used inappropriately. How does that happen? Well, we communicate without speaking sometimes. For example, nodding to send agreement or affirmation and shaking your head to show disagreement or uh, the negative. So if you're in front of the court and your, a question is posed to you and you use nonverbal communication and you anticipate that the judge or the clerk will rely upon it, you've got to make sure you run up, don't run afoul of the ethical rules requiring candor to the tribunal. Likewise, if you're in a negotiation with opposing counsel, you have to make sure that you know a shrug of the shoulders, which would indicate, I don't know, is inconsistent with information you actually have and are required to disclose as part of a negotiation or discovery obligation. That, again, could run afoul of a different disciplinary rule, which requires that you be honest in disclosure to opposing counsel. Do you really need to pay as much attention to your, your nonverbal forms of communication as the words you're saying? You absolutely do. It's critically important. I referred earlier to Sonia Hamlin and her fine book. In it, she talks about the formula of communication and what goes into messaging. Hamlin says that 55% of counsel's first impression is based upon nonverbal communication. Again, your dress, your posture, your movement, your gestures. 55%. She says the next 38% is based upon your voice, not what you say, but how you say it. And it's just that last 7% that is the spoken word or the written brief of arguments that goes into the impression. So certainly, words are important in trial practice. You have to lay a foundation under the rules of evidence to get your evidence into, uh, you can to get your exhibits into evidence. Likewise, you have to cite the correct precedent to perfect your appeal. But that's really only that 7% of messaging. If you want to have the jury rooting for you, focus on the 93% that you can control. The body language, the use of your voice, and the 7% will take care of itself. Tell me from a personal experience, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but any telling or amusing anecdotes from earlier in your career where maybe nonverbal forms of communication came into play for you, either for better or for worse? It reminds me of a story, Jason, that uh, is something that made me want to become a lawyer in the first place. Uh, my grandfather was an Irish immigrant, and he was called for jury duty. And he was a very proud man and, and saw this as one of his you know, civic obligations. And he described the process as a bit of a fiasco because it was a criminal case, and the defense lawyer was horrible. So while he's in there with dozens of other potential jurors during jury selection, this lawyer is up there at defense table, uh, defense counsel table. Uh, he's got his tie askew. He hasn't combed his hair. And when the judge comes out, he's still seated. He has to be told to stand up. When he does stand up, he forgets to introduce his younger female co-counsel. And so the judge has to 
ask her what her name is, and some of the jurors actually chuckled. A, another potential juror, a woman, leaned over to my grandfather and said, his client's going to lose. And my grandfather said, geez, how can you say that? You shouldn't prejudge these things. That's terrible. They haven't even you know, put evidence on yet. How can you say that? She says, well, I know that his client doesn't have a good case, because if they had a good case, they'd have a better lawyer. <laughs> and the lawyer hadn't even really opened his mouth yet. But the nonverbal presentation that he made in front of the jury pool made them all conclude that he was not going to be an effective lawyer, and therefore his client must not have much of a case. That's how important all of this nonverbal messaging is for us as trial lawyers. Just like you said in the beginning, you know, even before the, the opening statements, you're, you're making that impression. Absolutely. You know, it happens during a trial when you're on breaks, if you're in the elevator or the restroom or the courtroom lobby or the coffee shop, you're always on stage. They're always judging you. They're always making conclusions based upon the way that you carry yourself, not just the way you communicate verbally. The good news in all of this study is that much of these tips and techniques are learned skills. They don't have to be part of someone's innate talent. There are only so many Oliver Wendell Holmes and Clarence Darrow's. But all of us can work on the 93% factors involved in making a first impression better. And we certainly can try to get the, uh, the spoken and written word better for the last 7% as well. But by paying attention to how we dress, how we stand, how we move in the courtroom, how we conduct ourselves with others, how we gesture, facial expressions, hand movement, and posture, we can send positive nonverbal message that enhances our arguments to the jury. Chris, you've offered a lot of helpful information for trial lawyers looking to up their game. I want to thank you for, for speaking with us today, and we look forward to speaking with you again, maybe for uh, some other trial tips. Thanks very much, Jason. This has been the Mass Bar Beat with MBA Treasurer and trial lawyer extraordinaire Chris Kenny. I'm Jason Scally. See you next time.